Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. On our last episode, we talked about what we could do about the big technology companies. Today, we're going to talk about what they are doing to this election. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. I'm delighted we have two real experts to guide us through this minefield today, and it is a minefield. Charles Arthur, who was for a long time the technology editor of The Guardian and has written widely about the interface between new technology and old politics, and Jennifer Cobb, who is a lead researcher at the Trust and Technology Initiative in Cambridge. So my fear in this election, as someone who is not on Facebook, so it's a bit of a either refuse Nick or just somehow never got around to it. In 2017, I'm very aware I missed a large part of what was happening in the 2017 election, and only in hindsight did the surprising results start to make more sense because there had clearly been another campaign going on that had passed me by, particularly on the Labour side, a very effective Facebook campaign, and issues were being raised that if, like me, you got your coverage from mainstream media, you just missed. So I didn't know that not just fox hunting but the ivory trade was a big election issue in 2017. So I have two fears in 2019. The first of which is that 2017 is repeating itself and I'm missing it and poll gap is starting to close. Labour are clearly doing better than people thought, and there probably is a Labour campaign I'm not seeing. And then the second fear is that I'm one of those people who thinks that it's 2017 again, and actually 2019 is a different campaign, because two years is a long time in technology. So we'll, we'll try and deal with both of my anxieties. Charles, is this like 2017 again? Is, for instance, Labour running a really effective Facebook messaging campaign that people like me are missing? Facebook has got a lot more transparent about the ads that are running. So there's now a place you can go on Facebook and see what ads are being run by which parties or by organisations that are paying for it and what they're doing, who they're targeting it at, what the message says. And from what I've been seeing of that and the WhatsApp group I'm on, which is discussing these sorts of things, there doesn't seem to be a big Labour project going on. The Lib Dems have got a gigantic one going on, which has loads of different ads. The Conservatives, similarly, Labour are sort of third in that group and the Brexit Party a bit smaller. But, but there doesn't seem to be this big groundswell of really different ads breaking through, certainly not on Facebook. So when you say third, is that in volume, in spend? In spend. Because one of the ads that has broken through to me, so I saw it because it gets picked up by mainstream media, if that's what Huffington Post is, is the Rob Delaney ad that Labour ran. Very, very effective piece of political messaging. So if people haven't seen it, we'll tweet the link to it. He talks about the death of his young child, the incredible care he got from the NHS, as an American, I mean, what makes it so effective is he says, as an American, I love, I'm not going to do the accent, but he loves the NHS. Um, and then we get a message that goes further than anything Corbyn has said, which is, if Johnson gets in, Donald Trump's children will carve the NHS up between them. And when I saw it a couple of days ago, 10 million people had seen it, which sounds like a lot to me. I mean, that is a that's, big... Yeah, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good reach, as they call it. So yeah, even if you... Labour aren't spending as much on what you might call the micro ads, they seem to have, at least in one case, the most effective political message that is just being shared. Absolutely. And, I mean, the Rob Delaney thing is really interesting. I mean, I've seen him do a routine, a comedy routine, and the NHS is actually part of that. You know, he's so fixated on it. But his, his real power is that he's not a politician. So someone who's not a politician doing these sorts of things has much more effect, I think. And that's part of why it gets shared so widely. And it's 
been interesting that very early on in the campaign, Labour tried to get a thing going, which was what Tory austerity has done to me, or, or a similar thing, you know, to get people sharing hashtags and stuff on, on Twitter about you know what I don't want to see anymore and, and uh, what they want to be rid of. There's been an effort to make these things go viral, but it hasn't quite happened as far as I can see. And that's been a difference, I think, from 2017. There hasn't been that same ignition of, of any of these things, apart from the Rob Delaney one. Jennifer, do you have a sense of how to judge these things? So Rob Delaney, through people sharing it, and there's been quite a lot of interesting analytics about who's been sharing it, from what I saw. It's being shared by people who don't normally share political messaging, certainly Labour messaging, much more shared by women than by men and so on. I have a feeling that 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 is a lot of people, and it could be a very important message. But I have no way of knowing how to judge that. So this is, I suppose, the the other side of the campaigning that you see happening online is this organic reach is what it's all about. Labour has historically, or not historically, but the last couple of elections been extremely good at producing good videos that actually get shared quite well. A lot of them were done by Momentum in 2017. There was the one about towns that I think got shared very broadly a couple of years ago. But I think Charles is probably broadly right. They haven't had quite the same impact as they did in 2017, although they have been producing quite good, very entertaining in some ways videos recently, sort of more lighthearted kind of stuff, as well as that kind of more, much more serious video with Rob Delaney. Well, the Rob Delaney one starts quite lighthearted does, and then, get, and then gets, gets pretty serious. Pretty serious yeah. Yeah. Um, but this sort of organic reach kind of side of things is something that's really, really crucial for this because it's basically free exposure. But whether that translates into any kind of meaningful change in polls or actually any kind of meaningful engagement with the party more generally is something that is kind of difficult to tell with this stuff because you can look at, you know, who's looked at this video, who's who shared it, but you can't really see any further than that into who's then clicked through to the party's website or who's signed up for whatever. So it's kind of, you slowly get very surface kind of information about this kind of thing, but it does seem to have been pretty widely shared. Is there a way of judging from 2017 if we have these two possible narratives, one of which is that Labour were better at big messages that were widely shared, and Labour were also potentially better in 2017 at more narrowly targeted messages in particular constituencies or at particular groups of voters. My feeling has always been that if I was a political party, I would be much keener on the big message widely shared. I mean, if you go back to the Brexit referendum, there's a whole set of stories and anxieties about micro-targeting, but also there's a simple message on the side of a bus which had the words NHS in it. I mean, it does seem in British politics, if you can get a message with the letters, not words, letters NHS in them, particularly in the logo, you're doing pretty well. Do we know in 2017, is it a more familiar story about just effective big messaging versus micro-targeting? Or do we not know yet? Or will we ever know? I think it's difficult because our receptivity to these things changes over time. Familiarity breeds contempt. So that when the first banner ad appeared on the internet, people were like, what is this amazing thing that's appeared on my page? I'll click it and see where it takes me. Whereas nowadays, you know, banner ads are everywhere. You do all you can to get rid of the damn things. No one clicks on them. Unless they're a Google result, which is always an effective sort of ad and people find themselves clicking on it and giving money to Google. But it's interesting to go back even to 2015 because you discussed a, a few episodes ago about how the Tories wiped out the Lib Dems in 2015 in the Southwest. And 2015 was when the Tories did a huge amount of work on Facebook in those constituencies, really targeting Lib Dem voters or people who had, who had voted Lib Dem, you know, gone away from the Tories to try to get them back to the Tories to vote. And yeah, there seems to have been an effect there in 2015. And did they use the message that we were discussing, which was the Ed Miliband, Nicola Sturgeon? I don't know about that, but they definitely did do a lot of work on it. And, and it's, yeah, it's quite likely that they used the Ed Miliband, you know, Nicola Sturgeon thing there. But, you know, whatever their, their messaging was, along with all the other things they were doing, it was effective. 2016, yeah, there's all the argument about what effect did all the micro-targeting and the dark ads and so on have on the referendum. It may have been marginal, you know, but it might have made a difference as well. 2017, similarly, I mean, but I think that now we're sort of four years on from the first real-time Facebook users, the big time, and people are familiar with it. It gets talked about on the news. You know, the BBC today has an extra podcast which talks about, you know, the dark ads and micro-targeting. We're talking about it, which didn't happen a few years ago. I think that people get a new to it and they sort of say oh look it's one of those things they're trying to make go viral rather than it actually going viral in its own and I think that 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 means that we're much more resistant I, I suspect people are more resistant to it. So Jennifer does that mean that my fear which is that I am not aware of a big chunk of this election because it's happening beneath my personal radar is overblown that actually 
as Charles says, increasingly that even people like me are being made aware of what's going on because it reaches through. So I know about the Rob Delaney video, but also listen to the discussions of the micro-targeting without actually seeing it myself. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think what we're seeing is that this has become mainstream in, in a way that it wasn't a few years ago. But it's also, none of the parties are using this in a particularly different way from what you would expect. I mean, the Lib Dems message is stop Brexit and only the Lib Dems can win in whatever constituency. It's not really that new. What they put on their leaflets, it's just coming Yeah, and the, the Tories one is if you vote for the Lib Dems and Corbyn, you'll get a hung parliament and it'll be chaos, which is, I mean, that's, we had that before. And the Liberal one is all about the NHS. So actually, there's not really anything new happening with this stuff. Um, it might be targeted to specific constituencies or specific age groups or whatever else, but actually it's not the micro-targeted kind of stuff that I think we maybe saw with with the Leave campaigning in 2016, um, with some of the other campaigns that we've seen in other years, it's still very general in a way that I think we haven't really, you know, we, we think about micro-targeting, but we don't talk about the fact that actually it's basically just a continuation of the old style. The one message that I saw, so Charles, you shared a list of Facebook ads, people like me can see what's going on, and a lot of them were very conventional, particularly the Lib Dem ones. It was really noticeable the extent to which they were spending a lot of money, but they didn't seem to be doing anything new. The one conservative one that seemed to me to be eminently targetable was about inheritance tax and the Labour manifesto commitment to reverse George Osborne's raising of the threshold. The message was that ordinary families will suffer under this policy if Labour gets in. It wouldn't be complicated to identify the group of people in any given constituency who fell within the bounds of the new tax and targeted at those people. And I'm assuming that it's possible for Conservative Central Office to do something roughly like that because most of them seem to be geographically targeted, so in a way much less sophisticated. It's just you'll get the message if you're in Bolsover about who can beat Labour in Bolsover. But this one was a broad message about Labour's tax policies targeted at a not a super narrow group, but a relatively narrow group. And in a way, it was really noticeable that that stood out that one I thought there'd be much more of that you could go through both parties manifestos and identify the people who might be affected by small changes to tax rates or whatever but there wasn't a lot of it but with the inheritance tax one would those be people who would be likely to vote Labour anyway I mean are the Conservatives trying to dissuade people from voting Labour or are they trying to reinforce their Tory voters who they already have and are they in a constituency where where it makes a big difference because I get the feeling that a lot of this spending is being targeted at the marginals at the constituencies where they feel they might be at risk you have to sort of think of it in a grid way don't you that there's a two by two grid there's there's the people who you want to reinforce their position for you already there's the people who you want to make feel bad about the others and there's the people you want to try to switch one way or the other and it's a bit like car adverts. They tend not to make you buy the car, but they make you feel good about having bought the car when you see them already having done it. And therefore, buy the same car again. Yes. That, as I understand it, that is the rationale of car advertising, to reinforce ownership rather than to change people's minds. It's also true, inheritance tax is a really interesting one because people discovered in the United States it was a very effective piece of messaging to target at people whom it wouldn't affect at all, who had no hopes of ever being in the bracket where they would have to pay inheritance tax. And yet it seemed, particularly when it was rebranded as death tax, which I noticed this one didn't do, so they haven't gone down that route. But to spread the message that they're coming for you even after you're dead works on people who will never be affected by it. So there may be something of that going on too, I'm not sure. So in a way, again, it's not actually micro-targeting, it's it's broad messaging. There's a lot of discussion about, about this micro-targeting, but if you actually look at Facebook's advertising tools, if you go into sort of the back end of Facebook to what they show advertisers, you can't get that narrow. You can get within you know certain age ranges or certain geographic locations, and you can select certain interests that people might have, and you can upload lists of people you might already know, but you can't get to the deeply fine-grained kind of stuff that people seem to be very worried about. And I think that's kind of had then the effect of the advertisers going, well, let's just go a more general kind of thing because you can't get as narrow as perhaps they might want to. I think you can get less narrow now than you perhaps could in the past. And I think that's something that has had an effect on how people are going about doing this. But I think a lot of the key messaging that we're seeing from the parties is coming through this organic kind of stuff that we talked about before, like especially on Twitter, where they've now got rid of political advertising, in theory. A lot of the key messaging is now coming through the leaders' accounts. So like Joe Swinson's account on Twitter is, is so much more active than Joe Swinson's account on Facebook because you can't do the political advertising on Twitter. But that gives them that organic kind of thing, which is actually more believable in some ways. People don't really like the targeted advertising so much, 
but the more organic kind of stuff, people share it a lot wider than you would get with the other stuff. We'll come on in a second to the question of why, given the Lib Dems are the most active in this area, it's going so badly for them, because it doesn't seem to be a very effective campaign. But Jennifer, you mentioned that in theory, political advertising is now banned on Twitter. So something else that has changed, certainly since 2015 and in part since 2017, is we're more aware of the responsibilities, if that's the word, of the platforms themselves. They are still broadly self-regulating. Maybe they are entirely self-regulating. How much has changed from 2017 to now? So for instance, you say in theory, how much difference has that edict made? I think it's difficult to know on Twitter, sorry. I think until we look back kind of after the election and see what really changed. But I think the different platforms have all decided now that they need rules for this. They just don't want rules from the outside. They want to be able to set their own rules, which is not something I think is a really desirable position for us to be in from a democratic point of view. But where we are with this is that basically Facebook's message is, well, no, we learned from 2016, you can trust us, we'll do this right, um, as if Facebook has any kind of credibility at all. And Google's saying we want to try to find things that are demonstrably false claims and we won't allow those, as if that's something that Google can actually do in some in some way. And Twitter's saying we want to get rid of political advertising completely, as if they can draw a clear distinction between political advertising and non-political advertising. Do we know how they try and draw that distinction? I don't know what counts as political advertising on Twitter? I mean, I can imagine what obviously is. I, I think it's advertising paid for by a political party. So that's, A party? Yes. Not a person? Not a person. I don't, I don't think they make that distinction. I mean, it, it's a bit like sort of the PACs and stuff in the US, isn't it? That it's, those can buy as much as they like, but a political party can't. Which doesn't really get rid of the problem, it just moves it to different people. So we've seen, you know, the use of like proxy pages and that kind of thing on Facebook. We'll probably see similar things on Twitter where people, you know, spread the message of a party without actually being the party. And we'll probably see similar kind of advertising on Twitter because that seems to be the, lo- the logical way to get around this and it seems like an easy way to get around it. But Twitter, I think, has decided to take this position but doesn't really get into the details of it because I think there are good reasons for not really getting into the details of that. But Facebook have, have, have said, you know, they're going to restrict certain things and how they fact check politicians or fact check political messaging. And that seems again to be a position where it's like, well, how are you deciding what's political messaging? How are you deciding who counts as a politician? I don't think it's good that Facebook is the company that gets to make that decision and decide who gets fact checked and who gets, um, who doesn't. I mean, there's, there's an interesting spectrum of fact checking between the different networks. So Snapchat has a team of people uh, who are responsible for checking whether you know, would-be political advertising is, quote, true or not. Twitter says, well, we're just not going to have it. Google will allow it, but if there's a clearly false claim, then they take it down. And they did that with one of the uh, conservative adverts, where they got people to click through to register to vote, and they sort of click through into a, into a Tory uh, thing, or possibly, or it might be a Labour manifesto thing, uh, which that, yeah. was actually not labelled as being an advert from the Tories. One or the other got taken out by Google. And then there's Facebook who says, well, well we just don't know, so we're just not going to try. And as Sasha Baron Cohen said the other day, in his speech in New York, I think, if Hitler was around now, Facebook would shrug its shoulders, but take his money. But interestingly, the rebuttal to that was people saying, well, actually, the New York Times ran an article by Hitler saying, you know, I'm, I'm really all for peace in 1938 or so. so, so yeah, and I think it's fair to say the Daily Mail's track record when it came to the 1930s wasn't... <laughs> wasn't stellar. <laughs> yeah. Does it look different... To you, so if we've moved from the Wild West free-for-all to the Wild West, but with the cowboys saying, you can trust us, we'll do a bit of the regulating of what happens in our neck of the woods, does it look different at all? Is it less raw than it was 2016, 2017? Oh, definitely, because they're a lot more worried about having this imposed on them from outside in the US and uh, to a lesser extent in the UK and Europe. Germany's had all sorts of rules about what you can and can't say. France, I think, got very upset, didn't they, in the election about all the fake stuff about Macron. For example, Google announced early on in this election that they wouldn't allow micro-targeting, as they call it, which is fine because Google can't really do that anyway. It's what they call a strategy credit in the sort of tech sphere, which is, you know, you cover yourself in glory for something that was never within your capability. And Facebook has also, though, said that they're thinking about reducing the ability to micro-target to groups of a thousand. So the smallest you could sort of go for would be a thousand rather than the sort of dozen or so. I mean, there was a fabulous story from a few years back of a guy who who did tar- micro-targeted his roommate as a prank. 
and was able to sort of build a Facebook custom audience that small. This was sort of 2014, 15 or so. Since then, Facebook has made it harder to do, but they're taking away the micro from the, the targeting because they're really worried that someone like Elizabeth Warren is going to you know, impose this on them from outside and, and that that will very much restrict the interest of advertisers in advertising on them. If I put the question more bluntly, if you didn't know any of the rhetoric, if you didn't know the things that they'd said that they were going to do and were just shown what existed in this space in, say, 2016 in the Trump election or around the Brexit referendum and what exists in this space now, would you be able to notice that we were in a much more regulated environment? I think it would be difficult. I think it's difficult to know what difference is because the platforms have changed what they allow people to do and what difference is because it's a different set of people campaigning from, say, the 2016 referendum. You know, the, the Leave campaign took a very specific kind of messaging in 2016 that the parties haven't really taken in a similar kind of way. So it's difficult to know if that's a product of the platform or a product just of different style of campaigning. But I think this question of, you know, why are they doing this in a way that they weren't doing before? Um, the, the platforms, I mean, is, I think Charles is right, that it's trying to stave off regulation. I don't know if that'll be successful because I think we can't really tell what the, what they're really doing in practice. And I think that complete lack of transparency and this complete lack of accountability around this kind of stuff from the platforms means that actually we need to have some kind of external regulation to put some minimum standards in place to try to constrain this in some way. You know, a lot of conversation comes from people talking about how these systems could be abused by bad actors. But I think at this point, we have to kind of accept that Facebook itself is a bad actor and try to put some kind of limits around this stuff so that they don't get to make the choices anymore. Do we have any idea whether the Russians are messing with this election? <laughs> Just think they'd, tr- they'd find it hard to know which side to, to be on, wouldn't they? It's, oh, they're all, they're all Lib Dems in the crowd. Right? Yeah, there's, there's no evidence of it. I mean, it's hard to see where that would show up in the Facebook advertising spend because they're dwarfed by the amount that's being spent by the big political parties. When it comes to things like Twitter and so on, that seems to have quietened down. The difference, I think, in the, the campaigning now this year particularly, and 2017, but particularly the difference from the referendum, is that in the referendum you had the binary choice. And the different campaigns, particularly Vote Leave and Leave.eu, were really trying to focus in on get the vote out, make people angry about something, spark the outrage, find the buttons to push that will actually make this happen. Whereas in this election... The micro-targeting that was used in the 2016 referendum, micro-targeting now is, well, what the hell is our message? It, it, you know, for the Lib Dems, it's, we can win here and we'll stop Brexit, sort of. And for Labour, it's, well, what is it? What actually is it that you want to say? And for the Conservatives, it's get Brexit done, even though the news messages that people hear all the time is, actually, it won't really be done. It'll be sort of, you know, it'll be sort of this half-cooked thing that will go on forever. So I think the difficulty there is because you don't have the binary choice, which I think was actually clearer in 2017, it was more of a binary choice, because you have these different things coming through, there's very few single messages that, that you can push and try to find the buttons for. I mean, the NHS and the Rob Delaney one is, is possibly the only single thread that runs through all this. Is people worried about what the hell's going to happen to the NHS after the election? Hello, it's Catherine here, the producer of Talking Politics. As it's very nearly December, we've decided to reopen the online shop just for a few days. So between midnight tonight, that's Thursday, until midnight on Sunday, you can head to talkingpoliticspodcast.com where we'll be selling the remaining stock of the cotton tote bags as well as a limited number of glass coffee cups, the ones that you can carry out and about with the lid, which also have the Talking Politics logo on them. If you live inside the UK, we can guarantee to get those to you in time for Christmas. If you live further afield, we may struggle, but we will do our very best. We'll post everything out in unmarked envelopes. So if you want to surprise the Talking Politics fan in your life with an excellent Christmas gift, then head to TalkingPoliticsPodcast.com between tonight at midnight, that's Thursday, and Sunday. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
One of the oddities of a British general election is, for the reasons you say, it's much harder to make it a binary either-or campaign. There are multiple messages, multiple strategies as well. Very complicated, the different regional variations, tactical voting and so on. And yet the British electoral system is designed to gear us towards a binary choice. So, for instance, the leaders' debate ended up being between the only two people who could be prime minister. And there is a way that you can structure the messaging around that. And I think quite a lot of the messaging is simply anti. If you don't want Corbyn to be prime minister, if you don't want Johnson to be prime minister, because those are your choices. In 2017, the surprise of the election was that the two main parties in what looked like a much more complicated space just crowded out everyone else, and particularly Labour ended up with 40% of the vote, which seemed impossible at the start of the campaign. And I still think we don't know, is that because they ran a brilliant campaign? Or is that because the British electoral system is geared to produce that outcome, and it's starting to do it again? So we don't know this time, is it that the Lib Dems are really running a bad campaign? Or are the Lib Dems suffering their traditional fate, which is when people focus on the choice, for all of the complexity that you've just talked about, it does, as you get near a polling day, start to look like a binary choice. We, I still think we don't know if it's, a, I said at the beginning, is it old politics or is it new technology? I think the fundamentals of how the political system in this country works haven't changed. I mean, you need, what, 30 to 40% to get yourself a majority, depending on what the other parties get. So both parties aim for that and kind of, that's, that's their message, get us this amount of votes, we'll get to keep the other party out. And that hasn't changed at all. I think the methods for doing it have changed a bit. But I think from what we were saying before, a lot of actually what we're looking at isn't really the, the really narrowly micro-targeted stuff. It's still the same kind of campaigning that they were doing for, for years before this. So I'm not actually sure that much has changed, really. Um, in so the it is the shock of the old. Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, we're kind of looking at, you know, same old, really, yeah. Time spent on doorsteps, I think, is still going to be more effective than a Facebook ad because it's actually a chance to, to believe that they believe you exist. For the voter on the doorstep, it's it's actually a chance to, to push back a bit. I mean, the, the Lib Dems apparently are getting pushed back against the idea of revoking Article 50, that people say, well, but, but there was a democratic vote. So they're sort of playing that down. And I suspect that'll start to show through in the way that they target their Facebook ads, the, the structure of their Facebook ads over the next sort of two weeks. But yeah, political messaging is an old art, isn't it? And all we're doing with, with the social networks is saying, we can show this message to these people, this message to those people. But if your message is no good, then you still don't have a sale. I know Labour MPs, a number of Labour MPs were doubtful that having this election was a good idea. But at least one or two of them think, for the very old-fashioned reason, that a winter election disadvantages the party that is most reliant on doorstep campaigning and particularly kind of swamping areas with a whole range of volunteers, often young people, going out into parts of the town they're not familiar with and knocking on doors. And it's just harder and, frankly, slightly more dangerous to do that in the dark in winter. If that's true, it's kind of 19th century. I mean, it's you know, that's not a 21st century message. That is about the weather knocking on people's doors in unfamiliar parts of town. Whereas if this were a Facebook election, it wouldn't matter whether it was summer or winter. I mean, the weather's always the same on Facebook. I mean, we'll never know in a way because you can never disentangle these things. But for now, at least, it's still, it does feel like a pretty traditional election. I think we can get carried away with how much Facebook and the internet and new technology has changed things. I mean, I think, yes, the internet has changed society quite dramatically. But we can kind of overdo it a bit and say, well, Facebook's transformed everything or the internet has transformed everything and now things are just fundamentally different. And I don't think that's necessarily always the case. It's this kind of tech exceptionalism kind of thing where it's like this dramatic transformation has occurred because all of a sudden we've got Facebook. I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think actually the fundamentals of, of this stuff are basically the same as they always have been. There is one difference, which is there are many more ways now for political candidates and parties to screw up. One of the big talking points early on was about the Conservatives, when there was that leaders' debate, changing the name of their Twitter account to Fact Check UK, which, if you reflect on it, you know, I think if, if wiser heads had prevailed, they would have said, no, this is, a, this is a, actually this is a bad idea if we look at how it's going to look in a few days' time. You know, it seemed great on the spur of the moment. It was sort of, ha-ha, you know, here we are, trolling, trolling the internets. But actually, it eroded the whole trust thing, which I think you know, a political party really needs. And the other way in which it's had a colossal effect has been, you know, whenever a new candidate is announced, people start trawling through their social media feeds and, wow, you retweeted this and you liked that. And, uh, you know, now you have questions to answer. And you thought you were going to be talking about the political party message, but actually it's all going to be about how you like this Islamic phobic 
tweet or this anti-Semitic tweet or whatever. That to me does feel different even than 2017. It's more pronounced. Clearly people are more attuned to the thought as soon as a candidate is announced, you just go through their social media history. And it's a kind of legacy issue that's not going to go away in the sense that all these candidates seem to have a history from about 2010, or a lot of, not all of them, a lot of them do, which can't be erased. It's still always astonishing to me that people who are even thinking of a career in politics have not yet noticed what could happen and the chilling effect that we keep hearing about, that people's awareness that everything is potentially going to come back to bite them will have a chilling effect and it doesn't seem to as of yet people still seem to be remarkably carefree in the moment and this is going to be a feature of our politics presumably going forward from here on in every candidate now part of the public vetting will be a trawl through their online past and that past isn't going away so whatever you did earlier on in your career is going to be there though you know it hasn't hurt Donald Trump so far no, that's true. But I think also if, if you're going to stand for election with a party, the first thing you should do is delete your history on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, yes, but... But I was going to be, can you? You can try. Uh, you can try to delete your, your tweets, but actually it still lives out there. Sometimes it's recoverable, but a lot of this stuff, if it's especially back in the long, dis- far distant past, you can clean it fairly comprehensively. It is quite weird, though, how even Facebook things, which don't get indexed by the, the Internet Archive, uh, people will find a way to, to recover them. They, they, you know, these things live on in a, in a bizarre fashion. Uh, I think you do also have that kind of thing where people go, well, they're clearly going to end up trying to go into politics so someday. We'll just screenshot that just because you never know. It's, you know, they call it, you know, keep the receipts. And I think that's the thing that happens. But I think also there's a lot of this stuff. Some of this stuff breaks through in this sort of mainstream discussion and you see people resigning from being a PPC or whatever. But I think a lot of this stuff also just exists on Twitter as an argument among people on Twitter and doesn't really break through in, into the real world. The stuff about like the, the Tories pretending to be a fact-checking thing, has that made any measurable difference to anything in, outside of people arguing about it on Twitter? Well, well I, think it has a, I think it has an effect on the margin. And you know, the margin might be where you know, the marginal vote is decided. It's the sort of thing which will either erode trust very slightly in someone who is wavering or else someone who feel strongly about it will feel very strongly about it and that's when they start to really ramp up things i mean there is an argument that your views aren't changed by stuff that you see on social media only reinforced whether it's positive or negative that you see but i think that if it deepens those feelings or if it gets people to waver a bit then then you you move towards a, a position where the vote decision becomes clearer and and i think that's the effect it has. Yeah, i mean not, i think given the What's happened over the last few years in politics? I think if you are kind of a marginal voter and you haven't quite decided, the fact that the Tories might have decided to pretend to be a fact-checking website isn't what's going to make you not trust the Tories. There's been three years of political messaging that's been questionable over the last few years. And I think we kind of tend to overblow what a single thing could do. Certainly, I, I tend to check on Facebook, not because I like Facebook, but it's a good way to see what's going on on Facebook, I suppose, and also to see what Facebook itself is doing. And talking to people, nobody talks about the Tories having pretended to be this fact-checking website, except for generally Labour-supporting people on Twitter already. And I just think a lot of what happens in what we think of as being the mainstream political discussion is actually what's happening between journalists and people who are very interested in politics already. And it doesn't necessarily have an effect on, on the broader discussion. As you said, Charles, in 2016, the messaging was designed to affect turnout primarily. And it does seem, I think most people have accepted now that you're going to struggle to flip Labour voters into Tory voters or vice versa with a smart piece of messaging. But you can, at the margins, affect people's propensity to vote. And that is crucial. And for Trump, it was absolutely crucial. It was the decider, his ability to persuade Democrats not to vote for Hillary, who had voted for Obama. And again, in this election, particularly in some of these complicated marginal constituencies where there's tactical voting, turnout will be key. Labour needs younger voters to turn out. That's absolutely crucial. A lot of younger people have registered to vote, but a lot will not have. And then the ones who have registered, it's all very well to register. It doesn't make any difference if you don't actually vote. Do you have a feeling in this election, have you seen any effective messaging, say, directed at young people that looks like it's explicitly designed to address that? question because the things we've been talking about don't look like that I mean they might again on the margins affect people's likelihood to stay at home or not depending on you know loss of trust might make you feel um, should I really but the get out the vote bit which is crucial for Labour well there's 
been a big register to vote thing and registrations seem to have been ahead of any of the other ahead of the 2015 2016 2017 elections referenda so that seems to have been very effective and that, interesting that was spread through social media by people doing sort of rickrolling people by doing oh my goodness Beyonce and Jay-Z have split up click the link to see and it takes you to the government pays to register the vote uh, okay very funny but, but <laughs> I'll, I'll register I'm here. <laughs> All right, since I'm here in terms of get out the vote well I think it's too early isn't it I mean we'd, we'd have to wait until the last few days to see whether that happens I think that's when you'll really start to see that sort of messaging starting to come out and it'll get I'm sure it'll get really intense possibly you know Labour's holding back to then to really start storming the messages through and really start pushing them because yeah as you said it all comes down to turnout really and suppressing is one thing but but actually getting people to turn out is quite another because we don't know what to make of the mainstream opinion polls particularly the party support polls there is a lot more focused now on people's confidence in leaders and the fact that the gap between Johnson and Corbyn has narrowed as it did between May and Corbyn they're all disapproved of but uh, Johnson is increasingly disapproved of and Corbyn is bumping up though last night's interview with Andrew Neil which we'll come on to in a second might not have helped YouGov did a poll with the headline figure but then among voters certain to vote the Tory lead doubled partly because we know statistically the Tory vote skews heavily towards older voters, and older voters are much, much more likely to vote. Everyone sees stuff online now, including older people, but again, presumably there is a somewhat of a bias on some of these platforms towards younger voters. So older voters are voting because they're going to vote anyway. So there is, again, this emphasis in the election about how you communicate to people under the age of 40, and it really does. I mean, the stakes are higher for Labour, aren't they? The effectiveness of online communication. If there was no online communication, the Tories would benefit. Yes, that's yeah, that's that's generally true. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a more high stakes election online for the Labour Party. Is that Perhaps. fair to say? I think where the where the younger people the youth tend to be on on the internet is probably not Facebook. So we talk a lot about Facebook, but they're not there. Um, it's, their, it's their parents and their grandparents from, are on Facebook. The younger people tend to be on YouTube or on Twitter. And if you can make compelling short video clips for YouTube or something, then you've got, you're onto your winner on that one, I think, which is something that the Conservatives haven't quite got the hang of yet. Whereas Momentum have been, like, sort of talked about before, have been very successful at that kind of thing. Twitter and, and YouTube lend themselves more to video than perhaps Facebook does. And Facebook has a much older audience, which would tend to tend to sort of go conservative. I mean, it's not even just Twitter. And, I mean, Twitter less so, but possibly Snapchat, Instagram, and even TikTok. TikTok is not... Who's winning the TikTok election? <laughs> that's <Charles>. in, <laughs> they're saying they're <laughs> not taking political ads. So it's, uh, that's, that's not actually... Doesn't seem to enter into it. The way that TikTok works is you can't... It's not like Twitter. It's fed to your algorithmically. You don't even really choose who you're following. So it's, it's a complete unknown at the moment. You know, TikTok is a complete black box in that sense. So my first question, is, is it possible after this election there'll be a very surprising result and people like me will have it explained to us that it was the TikTok election and we hadn't spotted it? It's entirely possible, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Possibly. I think TikTok tends to be teenagers. You could, be, get first, well, yes. you could get first-time yes. voters, you never know. But one of the interesting things about TikTok is that we look at the sort of companies like Twitter and, and Facebook and Google, and they're all US-based companies, and they all at least pretend to care about the law, whereas TikTok is a Chinese company who we have much less you know, influence over. So if people do start moving their campaigning to something like TikTok, the actual chances of getting them to pay attention to you know electoral campaigning rules is probably much slimmer than with the other companies. And Snapchat, which you mentioned now, you say have a kind of fact-checking fact team. Yes, they do, yeah. yeah do we know that's, how that's going? I uh, haven't found where it is that the Snapchat political advertising uh, platform is yet, but I haven't heard of any dramatic effects from Snapchat ads, but possibly again, you know, that's going to be the, you know, on the 13th of December, we'll say, well, it was all the Snapchat ads. It was the Snapchat election. Oh, God. And then it could be the WhatsApp election. So there's one more that we haven't talked about. And again, the fact I take myself as a bellwether here, if I've noticed it, then it has kind of made it out into the world where people like me notice it. So WhatsApp is more prominent in this election because it seems to be a means of communication among groups, particularly groups of politicians, which sometimes catches them out, but also means that there are kind of connections going on and ways that insiders can talk to each other, which is much more dynamic than it used to be. 
So last night, Corbyn, we had a clash of old and new. So Corbyn did a old-fashioned, very old-fashioned interview with Andrew Neil, which people now, who knows anymore what counts, but seems to have gone badly for him. But there was also the leak of a WhatsApp messaging group among Corbyn supporters talking about how you will then message on social media in the aftermath of what they accepted was an interview that had gone very badly for him. So I I see this. I don't even know if the WhatsApp thing is genuine. It looked kind of fake to me. It was too convenient almost. It looked like the kind of thing that if you were trying to construct something that looked bad for Labour, you would have this group of Corbyn supporters saying, Jeremy's just done a car crash of an interview. Let's swamp social media with counter-messaging. I didn't believe it. And yet I have no idea how to judge these things. How do you know if a leaked WhatsApp message group is for real? It takes a little effort to create them and to to make a fake WhatsApp group. You you know you can do you can screenshot and Photoshop and stuff. And I I did see a fair bit of discussion of this. You know, flood the social media. It's gone horribly. Thing and thinking about it, it just it doesn't ring true. Just because those aren't the sorts of phrases that you would expect them to use about it. You expect them more to be saying you know hooray it's it's a jeremy interview you know let's swamp and say you know how well it went. how wonderful it is yeah the whatsapp effect is interesting though because because it is used by by the tories it's used by labor but used by everyone it's used, used by the independents trying to communicate with each yeah, other by, tactical by, voting tactical groups voting, by, by the politicians when they're in the house of commons they're, they're all you know the erg has one the the soft tories have them it's transformed the way that politics get done within the house of commons it's transformed the way that politics gets done in terms of boosting and pushing messages out so you have a few favoured journalists who get the the stories early from the political parties they're sort of told to have a heads up for things you know that was leaked that there was a Labour group doing that to people like Owen Jones and Paul Mason so so the WhatsApp is having this this effect on on politics as well in terms of again the messaging and keeping things tight, I mean it's a bit like Labour in the '97 election with the pages, except now it's a two-way thing and it's a multi-person thing, which happens, you know, rather than Alistair Campbell sending the message out of what's going to be said, there can be some discussion about it. And but it's, it's more leakable because it's more screenshot. Much more leakable, yes. Does does the fact that it's owned by Facebook matter? <sighs> I think it's difficult to know exactly. It does mean Facebook get to decide who can do what, again, in the same ways they can do in their own platform. What we've seen with WhatsApp in, in some other countries in, in elections is been that WhatsApp has been a real sort of a medium for sharing disinformation because of the forward function. You can forward to, you know, really large groups. That hasn't, well, doesn't seem to have happened anyway in, in the UK. Facebook in other countries has limited the number of groups, the size of groups, and also the number of people you can forward messages to to try to combat this. But again, that's kind of relying on Facebook to take this seriously and do something um, useful, which is not always the case. But we haven't really seen that happen in the UK. And it does seem to be more about internal messaging rather than about people in the general population sharing messages. But I'm not sure how much we can really take from a sort of disembodied sort of set of messages screenshotted out of completely out of context with no real idea of who sent them to whom and in what kind of situation. There's discussion over whether they're WhatsApp messages or, or whether they're iMessage messages. And they seem to have been screenshotted from the sender's phone rather than from the receiver's phone, which makes it slightly questionable. But I think these kind of disembodied screenshots don't really help anything. They just throw, they sort of muddy the waters a bit. And yeah, it's, I mean, I that's, that's the thing. That's, that's I mean, the compared thing. to, say, Indian elections, where you get colossal amounts of disinformation spread around through WhatsApp groups, to the extent that that's, that is where Facebook took the action of limiting Facebook groups, uh, sorry, WhatsApp groups, the size of them, how, how much you could afford, is because so much disinformation was being spread uh, in India. Whereas here, I mean, this is the first example possibly I've heard ever in any of the elections where WhatsApp has had this sort of role. And if this is the worst that it gets, then actually that's not so bad. I think, I think it's interesting though that in, in, in say India, the, the thing is people sharing disinformation over WhatsApp. And in the UK, the thing is disinformation about or potential disinformation about what's being said on WhatsApp. It's a very different kind of way that it's being used. And it's difficult to know what you would do with that other than not necessarily believing everything that you see screenshotted because they're not easy, to, straightforward to fake, but they're not difficult to fake either. You, you do also occasionally hear politicians say that politics has got harder because WhatsApp takes up so much time that they don't... People during the, the parliamentary fights over Brexit were saying they were spending so much time on their WhatsApp groups they didn't actually have any time to do the politics. That's like being an academic with email. So it's supposed to, you know, supposed to have an email, you don't do your actual work. So we're two weeks from polling day. So Charles, you made this point, which I think is a fair one. 
we're always wanting to know which of the old rules apply and which don't. There used to be a rule about elections that people only really focus in the last week, and actually the last few days remain important. There's also a really interesting piece of political science research from a few years ago, so this new technology might have made some of it obsolete, that suggests there's quite a lot of evidence that campaigns do make a difference, but that when it comes to the day of the vote, people tend to go back to what they thought at the beginning of the campaign. So the 2017 UK general election is the counterexample because the campaign made all the difference. But generally in campaigns, the result is closer to the polls a month out than, say, five days out. So there's a lot of churn, and there's a huge amount of churn. I mean, we're in a very churny political world. Two weeks out, is there still a possibility in the space that we've been talking about for something, do you think, to have a dramatic impact? For instance, a a rollout of a Labour get-out-the-vote-among-young-people set of messages... I mean, there's always the possibility for some story to break through. And we don't know, for instance, Corbyn's interview last night with Andrew Neil, what effect it will have. Boris Johnson has still got to put himself through that ordeal, and it could go even worse for him. No one seems to come out of... And I mean, it's almost become part of the Constitution. Politicians put themselves in front of Andrew Neil, and they get absolutely eviscerated, and then it doesn't make any difference. But two weeks out, can we... Is the conversation that we've been having going to be potentially overtaken by something else that happens in this space or do we have a sense of what kind of election this is now online oh, this is a wonderful prediction isn't it I, we don't do predictions <laughs> on this podcast but not need to say what the result will be but whether the the week before could still see a kind of turbocharging of activity what a sort of british version of the october surprise that they have in the u.s elections i mean i Obviously, there will be some big story will arise that will have everyone talking. We don't know what it is yet, but no, if we did, (laughs) but that's rather like the film that emerged of Johnson in Northern Ireland talking about how there wouldn't be any checks going back and forth, which was wrong, completely wrong. Showed that he had no mastery of the detail. Showed he didn't understand his own deal. Was him? Was verified to be him? And yet had no impact at all. And. That seems to me one of the most mystifying things that's that's happened already, which is that you have a you know, a piece of film interview which is shared widely over social media, and is shown on the news as well, and yet has no effect on apparently on whether people intend to vote for this party or not. I think that to some extent shows that social media is now uh, so much part of the landscape that. It's sort of losing its power to to outrage in political terms, losing its power possibly to to move people in that way. Because in a way, that's the other side to my question. Are we actually looking at a kind of saturation effect and these conventional views that people focus in the last week and people are getting on with their lives and then they start to pay attention? But we're living in an information environment where, after all, it's an attention economy and the demands on our attention are so insatiable. It's not like there's going to be a period three days before an election where people switch on. If anything, they're more likely to switch off, just drowning in it. I think we're kind of at a position where I think it's similar to what you see in the US where there's a floor for, say, Donald Trump's support of about, I don't know, 39 40%. And I think kind of when it comes to Labour and the Conservatives, we're at a similar kind of point where there's a floor where things just are untrue or just complete nonsense doesn't matter because the people have pegged their, you know, their flagged that post or whatever the metaphor is, and they're just going to support that party or that side or that candidate, and they don't really care to a large extent about whether they're caught saying something that's maybe untrue, or if they have a bad interview with Andrew Neil, because that's kind of factored in that they will have a bad interview with Andrew Neil, because that everybody does, so and everybody says things that are untrue, and everybody gets into this now, and people just think, well, they're all at it, so I'll just support whichever one I supported anyway. I think what the internet has done has allowed us to see that in a way that we probably wouldn't have done before. So the video of, of Boris in, in Northern Ireland, politicians have probably been doing similar things for decades, but nobody saw it because we didn't have the internet to bring that through. And now that we have that, people are exposed to a much wider range of things. And have kind of just gone, well, you know, I'll just sort of take that into account, but it doesn't really change anything fundamentally because it's everywhere now and we're just so used to it. I think the big difference actually is that say, 20 years ago, or, or say, you know, 1997, that video wouldn't have surfaced until a few days before or possibly a week before the election date. Yeah, it would have taken some time to filter through. Whereas now, it's bang, it's up there the next morning, and it's being shared intensively 
and then it dies down and you move on to the next thing. I mean, it's a bit like the way that in the, in the US, Donald Trump does something and there's outrage and then there's, a, and there's like, okay, well, I'm exhausted already and it's only, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And, and I think that that's the other thing, which is you just get this constant barrage of, oh my God, I should be outraged about this. I should be outraged about that. Look, look at this PPC candidate and what they said. Look at what the, you know, the chief rabbi said. Look at what the, you know, Muslim Council of Britain has said. And it's like, well, okay, when, when do I get a rest and get a chance to think about this? Because that, that was the other way conventionally that things like the October surprise worked, which was that people were holding on to this information and waiting to deploy it, which doesn't really happen anymore. There's a bit of it. I mean, I think people were holding on to the Donald Trump tape, the infamous tape that came out, which was meant to be the thing that killed his campaign, but didn't. But it's hard, much harder to hold on to things. It's much harder to, you know, there's sometimes thought to be, well, the Tories must have some brilliant rollout plan that they're going to go after Corbyn at this and then this and then this. It's all factored in, like you say, it's all baked in. There's no point in holding on to something. Why would you? Yeah, because it'll but, leak out one way or another anyway. So that makes an October, or in our case, a December surprise less likely because you can hold on to it and then you release it and people will be like, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what? One of the things we've seen with this, with the internet, though, is that the kind of the role of things being true or not, or the things being shocking or not, or things being what you expect from people, or not, it's completely gone. Nobody cares about that anymore. It's just take your side, and everything else is factored in. And I think that's one of the things that's happened. In the show notes for today's episode, we will have a lot of links to things that we've been talking about today, and we will also tweet the link to this week's other episode, which was also talking about the power of big tech. If you want a slightly different take on Brexit, coming at it from another angle, but also exploring some issues that we don't get to on this podcast, the Another Europe Is Possible podcast, hosted by Zoe Williams and Luke Cooper, has a two-part special looking at the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. It is pretty dramatic. Everybody became a troubled junkie. It was just mayhem. Brexit has the potential to break up the British state. It will inevitably stoke the fires of resistance against British rule in Ireland. These Brexit extremists are actually playing with fire. Could Brexit wreck the Northern Irish peace process? We sent Luke Cooper and Zoe Williams to Northern Ireland to find out. Find our two-part documentary, The Forgotten Troubles, by searching for the Another Europe podcast on your podcast platform. You can get the first episode wherever you get your podcasts and part two of the Northern Ireland special will be out this weekend. Next week, it'll just be me and Helen trying to work out what the hell is going on. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.